Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. That might be the best song I have ever heard in my life. And, you know, for somebody who's been listening to Led Zeppelin all of his life, that's a pretty big deal right there. That, is, that blows away Led Zeppelin in a heartbeat. Incredible song. Well, welcome to Crosstown. We're glad you're here today. Uh, we are about to finish up our series on turbulence, and we all live with turbulence. We all experience it. But I wanted to tell you about a couple of things that are happening this week before Stacy comes to share. Um, on Friday, we're doing what's called Stations of the Cross. How many uh, Catholic folks do we have out there? Let me hear it. This is your moment to shine. <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah, there you go. So, yeah, I was raised Catholic all my life. There's nothing wrong with being raised Catholic. We don't villainize Catholics here. Uh, but we had this tradition called Good Friday, and we, we had the Stations of the Cross. And it was always this powerful moment where we, we had an opportunity to visualize the last moments of the life of Christ. Well, we've kind of ripped off the Catholics, and we, we grabbed a hold of that because we saw the, the power behind it. And so this coming Friday, starting at 7 o'clock, we'll be doing Stations of the Cross. It's really great for children as well. It's, it's, it's highly illustrative. It's a really good time to, you know, all the things that you think you have to get done for Easter, uh, all the things, you, the trips that you're planning for spring break or whatever it may be. This is like the one moment where you can stop and like, yeah, this is what it is all about. And then on Saturday, we mess all that up and we have uh, an Easter egg hunt that takes place here on the front lawn. And we invite you to be a part of that. And that will be absolutely a blast. And then on Sunday, we have our Easter service. Let me encourage you. Uh, I work extra hard for Easter um, because if you have a family member that's like me, I've already heard the story. You could tell the story a couple different ways, but I always ask God to kind of give me a, a different perspective on how to look at something that's incredibly familiar. And we become, when we become familiar with something, we walk past it more readily and easily. And so I ask God every year to kind of give us a fresh look at the resurrection of Christ and what it means to us. And it's, it's amazing how the gospel always delivers something that will speak to us. So invite your family members. You know, moms, if you're out there, tell, tell your son he can't, he, he can't eat dinner on Easter unless he comes to church. It's a great coercive power, and many people get saved that way. So we, we encourage you. Well, let me get out of the way, and Stacy's going to share with us more about this frontal turbulence that we experience in our faith journey with God. Thank you so much, Paul. And thank you guys so much for being here. It's so good to be with you guys this morning. And um, I am looking forward to continuing talking about this idea of turbulence. We've been studying um, about flight and the idea of turbulence. And it's really one of those things that can kind of unnerve us the most in a situation is turbulence. As a matter of fact, a few years ago, I was traveling with a friend. Um, we were flying out to Dallas for the weekend and I didn't realize that she didn't like to fly. I had no idea that flying was something that really, really terrified her. So we got on the flight and we were experiencing some, 
experiencing some turbulence. Well, let me back up. We actually, as we were walking through the airport um, at one point in Dallas, we looked out the window and I am not kidding you guys, I can't make this up. There was a fuselage, you know, the center part of the plane. It was on fire in flames and black smoke was billowing up. So that probably unnerved her a little bit more. Come to find out it's actually um, an exercise they were doing to make sure that they knew how to put that fire out. But we didn't know that. So then we get on the plane and we're flying back to Charleston and um, our flight attendant is walking by and we hit some turbulence and our flight attendant goes, whew, wow, that was rough. Okay, that's probably another thing you don't want your flight attendant telling you. I need her to pretend that it's fine. I need her to say, it's fine, it happens every day. So the turbulence continued to increase to the point where the pilot actually got on the plane and said, I'm gonna need all of the flight attendants to take their jump seat. At that point, my friend grabbed my arm and was like, what do you mean, are we going down? I said, no, don't worry, we're not going down. I'm pretty sure he just wants them to suspend the beverage service and sit down just in case. So, um, you know, maybe you have stories of experiencing turbulence and maybe you didn't get that drink that you wanted on the plane or maybe your heart was kind of beating out of your chest because turbulence is real. And we've been learning that what turbulence does, it's that, that shift in the airflow that changes the altitude, it changes the direction and the attitude of the plane. And the attitude of the plane, I love this, it's that orientation of an aircraft relative to the direction it's traveling. You know the quickest thing to change my attitude? When I'm traveling in one direction and then you come in and you want me to do something else. I'm, it's probably gonna change my attitude a little bit. But God's been working on me this week. So hopefully he'll work with all of us this week because we know that he's here today to, to talk to us about maybe the attitude that we have, the direction that we're going. And maybe it is stirring up some turbulence. Over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about different types of turbulence. We talked about um, mountain wave turbulence last week. And before that, we talked about self-induced turbulence. Today, we're going to be talking about frontal turbulence. And it really is kind of what it sounds like. It's when two fronts collide, when you've got a warm front and a cold front coming together into the same space. So what happens when frontal turbulence occurs is that cold air rises. It's heavier and it's denser. So it pushes up underneath that warm air and it pushes that air up. And as that air rises, um, it it has less ability to hold moisture. It creates a band of clouds and storms, creates great shifts of wind and pretty significant turbulence. And so when these two different fronts come together and collide, it creates a lot of turbulence. That's exactly what happened when Jesus showed up to do ministry. When Jesus showed up on the scene during that first century, there was a lot of turbulence that took place. We often think about Jesus, and a lot of times in our minds, we think of Jesus as kind of being meek and mild-mannered and, you know, maybe not stirring up a lot of trouble. But if you go back and you read He created a lot of turbulence. And so we're gonna look at that because when Jesus came on the scene, the Jewish people at that time, as most of us know, were being occupied by the Roman government. So the Romans had come in and they were ruling and occupying, especially in Jerusalem, which was the capital for them. And um, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders at that time, understood that there was a coming king. They knew the Old Testament very well. They probably knew it better than I know it or we know it today. They knew the prophecies that a king was coming. 
In their mind, they expected that king to liberate them from the occupation of the Romans. They thought this king was gonna come in, he was gonna wipe out the Roman government and he was gonna establish the kingdom of Israel again in Jerusalem and rule and reign in Jerusalem. And they thought that's what Jesus was going to do actually. the fateful Sunday that we're celebrating today, which is Palm Sunday. This is what we're told out of John's gospel about that Sunday as Jesus came in. They expected Jesus to come in and deliver them and they thought that was happening. Listen to how they responded as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it was written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus was fulfilling that prophecy that he was coming in and they had an expectation as he came in, you are the King of Israel, blessed be your name and the name of the Lord. And they were chanting and they were celebrating because here comes Jesus in on his donkey and they think it is here. The kingdom of Israel is gonna be reestablished and he is gonna reign. A few days go past. Jesus is not defeating the Romans in the way that they thought. So those two fronts begin to collide and one begins pushing up underneath the other one because Jesus literally rode into town and flipped the tables over. He came in and he wanted to flip over everything that they had preconceived in their mind and everything that they thought Jesus wanted to turn it upside down. And we see that over and over and over again in the stories that are recorded in the gospels. And we're gonna talk about that a little bit. But after a week of Jesus not meeting their expectations, they decided, that's it, we're done with him, we're gonna get rid of him. And so he got arrested and taken before Pontius Pilate, who was the ruling Roman governor of Jerusalem at that time. And if you go back to John's gospel, chapter 19, you just flip a few chapters ahead. In one week, this is how quickly the tide changed or maybe the shift in wind. Listen, John 19, verses 14 through 16. Now it was the day, the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, Pontius Pilate said to the Jews, behold, your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? He's like, listen guys, just last week he was riding in and you guys were screaming, he's the king of Israel in the name of the Lord. And listen to how the chief priest answered. We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The fact that the Pharisees, those were the religious Jewish leaders at the time said, we have no king but Caesar, that's shocking because at that time, Caesar had temples set up in his honor to worship him because he really thought he was like God. And so see how quickly they flipped when Jesus didn't meet their expectations? Is that true of us? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we're not gonna scream crucify him. I'm never gonna say crucify Christ. I actually look back at it and like, man, you guys, y'all missed the boat. How'd you not see he was fulfilling that? But how many times have I crucified him in my heart because he hasn't met my expectations? 
You see, I never expected to bury a child. Maybe you never expected to get that diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Maybe you never expected to be a single parent or file for bankruptcy or be divorced or still be single or not get that job or lose your house. We all bring expectations before God. And I think God is challenging us to release those expectations. I think he is asking for us to release our expectations back to God. I'm not saying let go of expectations. Expectations aren't necessarily bad, but we have to release them back to God. And I think we see this as a beautiful picture of this in the gospels again when Jesus is praying. See, if we begin to release our expectations of what we expect life to look like for us, when we release those expectations back into the hand of God, we can pray the way Christ prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. Listen to how Mark records this in his gospel. Mark 14, and going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed. This is Jesus right before he's arrested. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father. You hear that language of how Jesus is talking to God? He knew him, Abba, Father. He's saying, Dad, you can do anything. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. See, Jesus began praying by releasing his expectation back into the hands of God and saying, hey, listen, I really, if it's your will, can this cup pass before me, God? So I think we have ground right there to pray that to God and say, Father, if it's your will, let this pass, but not my will be done, your will be done. And see, when we begin looking at it that way and thinking about what Christ modeled in that prayer for us, it changes the way we interact with those around us. As a matter of fact, the apostle Paul goes on later to tell us in Philippians 2, he's writing to the church at Philippi and he is trying to encourage them. He's trying to say, if you can find any encouragement in Christ. So years have passed and he's saying, listen, I know it's hard and I know it's tough and I know you have all kinds of pressures and expectations, but if you find encouragement in Christ, then this is what I want you to do. Philippians 2, three through five. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I mean, y'all, that's hard. (laughs) Let each of you look not to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility, count others more than yourself. I mean, I can read that, but trying to live that out in my life, that is something that I cannot do on my own. That is something that I have to release my expectations of. And if I begin thinking about that verse, as a matter of fact, for our mentorship program, we have to pick a verse every month that we wanna memorize. Well, God picked my verse for me this month. It's this verse. He's reminding me, hey, Stacy, stop doing things that are all about you. And you know, I try to think, oh, I look out to other people. I try to help other people out. I wanna do for other people until 
It changes the direction I'm supposed to be going in and then I get a little attitude change and I have a problem and there's some turbulence. I want God's will when God's will lines up with my will, when I'm going in the right direction. I wanna do for other people when it lines up with what I'm already doing. I mean, I wanna be nice, I wanna be helpful, but I don't want it to have to like cause turbulence and shifts in my direction. That I have a hard time with. But the apostle Paul is saying, if you find any encouragement then what you need to do is release your expectations back to God and you need to look out for the interest of other people. And just think about that in your own personal life. I don't know what you're facing, what frustrates you, what your pain point is in your own personal life. I know what mine are. And I just think about how that would change the way I pray for people who are different than me. How would it change the way I pray about my marriage if I started looking to my husband's interest above my own interest? If I started looking at every situation with my husband and thinking about how I could come alongside him and serve him instead of how he's not serving me? I mean, I'll just be honest. I don't feel good. I have some pain in my shoulder. And so I'm constantly thinking, gosh, Why isn't somebody else doing this? Why am I doing this? And the Lord is challenging me. No, stop putting your interests first. Begin looking to the interest of your husband or your children, or maybe your boss. Maybe that's your pain point. Maybe in your job situation, you are frustrated because everybody knows that we're all smarter than our boss. I'm just kidding, Pastor Paul, if you're in the room. (laughs) Um, But the reality is most of us go into our job thinking, man, our boss doesn't know what he's doing. If he did my job, then he would understand. But what if we started approaching our job situations, thinking about putting other people before ourselves? And it says that this is the mind we have in Christ Jesus. Christ has shown us the example. He has shown us what it looks like. He came in humility as a servant, to serve us. What if we began incorporating that in our own lives? What if we allowed the formation of Christ in our life to be a demonstration to those around us? It would change the situation. It would begin changing the culture around us. I think we're so driven by the culture around us in the same way that these first century Jews and Romans were controlled by the culture around them. And when Jesus showed up over and over and over and over again, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of God is upon us. The kingdom of God is here. But it did not look like the kingdom of God that they thought. It collided with the kingdom of culture. And I think when we begin living lives following after Christ, it is gonna collide with culture and it is going to cause turbulence. But see, so many of us, myself included, so often have been fed a gospel that if you give your life to Christ and you start coming to church and you start tithing and you start serving and you start reading your Bible and you do all of these things, you won't have any trouble. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. He promises, he says it in his word. It's not a promise we like to quote very often because it's not one we like, but he goes on to say, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So when we think about the kingdom of God and we think about the kingdom of culture, there's gonna be a great turbulence in this world. I mean, 
when he began talking about the kingdom of God, he described it in parables and it went against what they thought. The kingdom of God being realized in our life, it has to, be, it has to deconstruct the thoughts and the preconceived notions that we have and it has to become kingdom focused, God oriented and directed and it seems unnatural to us. It does not seem natural to forgive the person who betrayed you. That is not natural. That does not come natural to us. That requires the spirit of God in you. When someone offends you, I mean a deep betrayal and offense. We are called to forgive, but that does not come natural. But that's what it means to kind of reorient our mind around this. When Jesus showed up, he turned culture upside down. I think a lot of times I lose that when I'm reading scripture because I'm 2000 years removed from what was going on in their culture, politically, religiously, socially, economically. I mean, until a couple of weeks ago when I had the opportunity to go to Israel and learn about what the culture really looked like at that time and study the history, I was shocked. I lose a lot of what Jesus did. When Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a woman and he starts talking to the women in the crowd, I'm like, of course he talks to the women in the crowd. I'm a woman and I stand on a stage in church and speak. You guys, that would have never happened in Jesus's culture. Not only weren't they, they weren't allowed to speak, They weren't spoken to. And so Jesus, as the teacher, when he looked at them and he began speaking to them, he was elevating them and saying, oh no, women, I love you. You're valuable, you're important. Jesus did not hang out with all the to-do people, except a few times. He did hang out with the Pharisees, those godly men at the time, those religious men at the time. You know what he does though? He rebukes them. And when he's at the house of a Pharisee and he's eating dinner with one of the Pharisees, a woman of the city comes in. That's a euphemism for a prostitute. She, can you imagine the courage in her heart and maybe the trepidation? She knows that she's a prostitute and she walks into this house of this godly religious man, but she knew her King Jesus was in that room. And she went to him and she wept and she washed his feet with her tears And Jesus, perceiving the thought of the Pharisee, because the Pharisee thought, oh man, if he knew who she was, he would never let her. And Jesus, knowing his thought, didn't even look at him. He looked at the woman and he said, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. He was absolutely radically flipping the tables on them. Talk about turbulence, talking about two fronts colliding and stirring up a storm. That's exactly what was happening. Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. Tax collectors is another um, thing that I think we lose in our current culture because I can tell you for years, every time I've thought about Jesus eating or hanging out with tax collectors, you know what I substitute? Probably what you substitute, IRS. No offense if you work at the IRS, but most of us aren't super fond of the government coming in and taking 10 to 50% of our income, right? But it's part of it. And because of it, we have a military and we have roads and we have schools and we have all these things. But in the Jewish time, the tax collectors were the most vile people. The Jewish people hated tax collectors. You know why? Because the tax collectors at that time 
were Jewish people taking money from Jewish people, giving it to their oppressors in the Roman government. And not only were they taking what Caesar said for them to take, but they also took enough to make them live very rich, very comfortable lives. So when it says that Jesus came and he was eating with tax collectors, we need to think about like child pedophiles. That's how they were perceived. That's how much they were disliked. And that's who Jesus spent some of his time with. He absolutely was flipping the culture on them because he wanted them to open their eyes to the kingdom of God. And I think today he is asking us to open your eyes to the kingdom of God. He wants you, because so often, I mean, how many times do we hear like the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us because we, we think it's somewhere else. We think it's otherly. We think it's like heaven is a bunch of clouds with people sitting on harps. If that is what you think heaven is, I am here to set you free from that. That is not, heaven is gonna be so much better. But when Jesus is praying, he says, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. See, Jesus initiated the kingdom of God. The reign of Jesus Christ was initiated when Christ was here on earth. And he wants us as his people to bring that kingdom on earth so that we can have a hope for an eternal reign of God that is never going to end. I need some hope in my life. I don't know about you. I don't know what you're facing, but I need hope in my life right now. I am facing some situations that seem hopeless. I have some situations with family members and with friends that if God does not intervene, I don't know how it's gonna work out. And I need that hope. But maybe Christ is calling us to be that hope by bringing a little bit of the kingdom of God down to earth. It's more than just how I fit in. It's not just about me and my story, but it's about how my story fits in to the big picture of what God is doing. And God is showing us that he is going to establish a kingdom that will rule and reign forever. When Jesus was walking around doing miracles, I mean, we see over and over again, he healed the blind, he healed the lame, he healed leprosy, he raised people from the dead. Are any of those people still alive today? No, they're not. So what was the point of that, Jesus? Because they still died eventually, right? Lazarus was raised from the dead, but guess what? Lazarus ain't still walking around today, is he? No. So why was Jesus doing that? Because he wanted to give them hope for the power and authority that he has that one day his kingdom will reign forever and ever and ever. And we can still look back on those moments and say, yes, there is hope. But we can also begin allowing the attitude, the mind of Christ to be formed in us so that we can bring that hope into our neighborhood, into our job, into our family, into our workplace, into our community. That's what we're called to do. That's how he's asking us to open our eyes to the kingdom of God. The prophet Jeremiah was talking to the people of Israel and they did not wanna hear what Jeremiah had to say. This was a long, long time before Jesus ever hit the scene. And Jeremiah was kind of telling the people, this is what's gonna happen to you. And then the Lord says this to Jeremiah. I don't have it on the screen, but it's in Jeremiah six sixteen. The Lord says, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your soul. The Lord said that through the mouth of Jeremiah, look to the ancient way, the ancient path, the good way, and you will find rest 
for your soul. See, I think a lot of us feel like if we could just get back to the good old days, if we could just make America great again and we could get back to the good old days and we get done with all this chaos, it's gonna be okay. That is not the good way. That's not the ancient path. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the path. And then in Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest for your souls. The only way that we are going to rest is when our eyes are open to the kingdom of God and what he is offering, which is an eternal kingdom that will last. And we have the privilege as his children, if you are in Christ, he says he's given you good gifts so that we can give that hope to those around us. And that ancient way, that good way, is the way of repentance, reconciliation, worshiping and loving God. Some of us need to come to a point where we recognize we've been living for ourselves, we've been selfish, we've been focused on ourselves, and we need to repent of that. We need to turn away from that, and we need to say, God, no more. No more, I trust you. I'm releasing my expectations in your hand. I don't have to fight for myself or protect myself. You are gonna protect me. You are gonna guard me. You're gonna keep me because that's what your word says. And I can hold on to that. I can trust you. But some of us have been hurt by God and we don't feel like we can trust him. And if that is you today, I am sorry. I am sorry for what has happened to you and I am sorry for the fact that you feel like you can't trust God. But I am telling you, I am standing on the word of God. He will defend you. He will fight for you. He will protect you. But you have to release control. You have to. This idea of worshiping God, living out this culture that is so radically and unnatural and different. Here at Crosstown, we call that Christ culture. If you were here this morning before worship started, you see that video, it's kind of a flyover video of Charleston. And the voice in that video is reading out our Christ culture. I love what our website says about Christ culture here at Crosstown. Christ culture is intentional and it does not happen by accident. We exert it, we impose it, We control our ambitions, our desires, and our responses based on it. See, Christ's culture is not going to accidentally show up in your marriage. Christ's culture is not accidentally gonna show up in your friendships. It's not gonna show up in your job because it is unnatural. We must exert it. We must impose it. It must control the way we have our desires lined up. One of the biggest things God's been teaching me lately is, girl, you got some disordered desires. They're all out of whack and you need to surrender them to me. (laughs) But we have to allow this Christ culture to teach us how to respond to situations. And so our Christ culture um, is right here in the back of our sanctuary. When you walk in, you see our mission statement, learner, lover, and leaders. We wanna become learners, lovers, and leaders in our relationship with Christ and the world around us. And then if you go have a cup of coffee, you'll see all those paragraphs. If you've ever wondered what that is, that is our desire. As a church, that is what we want to demonstrate. Our Christ culture says we seek first to understand others. If I went into every situation trying to understand you instead of trying to get you to understand me, think about how that would change conversations. I mean, I am so quick to tell you what I think. I am so quick to give you a piece of my mind. And I love how Pastor Paul has taught us 
Do not give them a piece of your mind. Let the mind of Christ rule in you. That mind that seeks to think of others better than myself. So we seek first to understand. We strive to speak Christ in the lives of others. And Christ says, I have come to set you free so you can be free indeed. Peter tells us it is God's desire that none shall perish. God does not want any person on this planet to be separated from him. Think about how different we would pray for people who are different than us, who we see as other than. Think about how that would change when we begin trying to speak Christ in their life. Not trying to clean them up, fix them, get them right with the Lord. That's not my job. My job is to speak the kingdom of God, the invitation to be a part of his family, not trying to clean them up. God will take care of whatever they need. He will meet their needs. We're supposed to create spaces of value and honor for all people, not people who look like me, not people who think like me, not people who respond like me, but for every person, for the person who's radically different from me. Boy, that is so convicting to me right now. I am to create a space of value and honor for that person who is the antithesis of everything that I think. That's my job. That's what God's called us to do. We strive to heal broken relationships. If you're like me and there's a broken relationship, I'm like, I just wanna stay away from it. I just wanna stay away from it. It's too painful, it's too hard, but we strive to heal broken relationships. We resist the road of being easily offended and we're quick to give and seek forgiveness. Quick to seek forgiveness. Pastor Paul likes to say we should always carry around an apology in our back pocket. We should be quick to seek forgiveness and give forgiveness. That's a hard one. I, again, I can't do that on my own, but there's hope. There's hope because he didn't leave us to do it on our own. We invest in the well-being of others. Think about every time you do something, if you're doing it so that you can build someone else up, so you can invest in their life, not for what it benefits you, but, but for how it benefits them. Think about how different it would be if you interacted with people thinking about how can I make an investment in your life? What can I do to help you? We use a greater mind than our own. We use the mind of Christ like we talked about in Philippians and we depend on the Holy Spirit because we can't do this on our own. But Jesus said, I'm gonna go but don't worry, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And if you have given your life to Christ, if you have acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, then he has poured out his Holy Spirit into your life. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence inside of you. And that is the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me say that again. The spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that's the spirit that dwells inside of us as the children of God. That's a powerful spirit. Don't you think that that can eliminate racism? Don't you think that can eliminate super macho men taking advantage of women? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it can. And it's not up to me. It's Christ in me. It's the formation of Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit. We seek personal transformation and we expect God moments. Here at Crosstown, we expect when you come in on Sunday morning that you aren't just listening to me, but that you encounter the living God. That is our heart's desire. That is our expectation. The presence of God is with us this morning. And we expect that. 
And then we get to sit back and watch him do abundantly more than we can imagine. Don't you want God to do abundantly more than you could ever imagine in your marriage, in the lives of your children, in your relationships at work, in your job? Isn't that what we want in our health, in our financial situations? The apostle Paul is talking to the church at Ephesus and he is telling them, you are being built up together into a dwelling place for God through the Holy Spirit. He says, listen, together you are being built up. Remember, it's not just my story, but it's my story in the greater story of what God is doing. And I love this prayer and declaration that the apostle Paul says. It is powerful. I encourage you this week, as we are entering in this week, what we call in the church, the Holy Week. It's the week leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's one of those weeks that if you can slow down some time this week and just spend time reading Ephesians 3, man, you will be blessed. Listen to what the apostle Paul says, because you're being built up together to be a dwelling place for God through the Holy Spirit for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you, listen to this part, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Wow, that hit me this week. I could be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we seek or ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. That's us forever and ever, amen. We are about to move in this time of expressions. And like I said, we expect God to meet you here. I don't know what your pain points are. I don't know what part of this message resonated with you today, but God is here in our midst. And during this time of expression, it's an opportunity for you to respond to what God said. Maybe I said something and it kind of just pricked your heart. Maybe he brought to mind someone that you need to forgive. Then this is an opportunity, come to the cross, put their name there, Maybe that's all you can do is write their name and pin it to the cross because you don't feel like they're worthy of forgiveness. It's okay. The blood of Jesus was shed for the forgiveness of their sin. You just put their name at the cross. He'll do the rest. Maybe for you, you are just in such a dark spot today that all you can do is just sit. We invite you to go and ask the elders to pray. We've got pastors and elders at the back. They wanna pray with you. It's an honor and a privilege for them to be able to pray with you to help you hear the voice of God, the kingdom of God that is here, that is at hand. Maybe today you wanna be reminded of the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We invite you to take communion. Or maybe today 
you are so overwhelmed and in awe of how far God has brought you and what God has done for you. Maybe today you wanna stand and worship him in song and you wanna praise him for his goodness because he is good. And if you know his goodness and you've tasted his goodness, some of us need to know that he is good. So you show us that he is good today. Father God, we love you and we thank you that you will do abundantly more than we could ever even ask. God, we thank you that you go before us. We thank you for King Jesus. We thank you that he has established a reign and rule forever and ever and has invited us in to be co-heirs with Christ. Father, may we represent you to the world around us. May your church, your bride be adorned in all of her glory and splendor to honor you through forgiving, through seeking understanding, through giving value to others, for investing in lives of others, Father. That is our heart's prayer. And then we wanna watch you do abundantly more. We love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.